listening to Female VC Lab, a podcast that showcases the journeys of female investors. My name is Barbara Bickham, and I am an award-winning CTO and VC that teaches companies and investors about emerging technology. I am sitting down with female VCs and investors to talk about their funds, how they invest, and how they make an impact. Welcome to the Female VC Lab podcast. I have Joanne here. Joanne, in one line, give me your name, your title, and the name of your fund. I'm Joanna Kwong. I'm the VP of Product and Impact at Illumin Capital. Wonderful. What inspired you to become an investor or venture capitalist? Yeah, so I've spent my entire career in Impact Capital. It actually goes back to the summer between freshman and sophomore year of undergrad. I was a part of a college undergraduate scholarship called the Robertson Scholars Program. And as part of the program, you had to live and work in one of four places in the American South. So I was Mm. teaching at a freedom school in the Mississippi Delta. And I saw the power of philanthropic capital in driving really great outcomes for my students. A lot of my students were the first in their family to go to college in a town that was still basically segregated. And so I kind of, I decided then that I wanted to commit my career to impact capital. So I've worked in various forms of impact capital in public markets with long only public equities at Wellington Management. I worked mm-hmm. with a special purpose vehicle helping government pay for outcomes in social services mm-hmm. at a company called Third Sector and joined Illumin Capital because of our unique thesis around reducing racial and gender biases as a core part of being an investor. And I'm really excited to work in private markets because I think that's where a lot of companies get that first bit of capital to build and scale their products and services. That's awesome. So we we have a lot of alignments there in general. Tell me a little bit more about your thesis and kind of the impetus behind that. You talked a little bit about it, but Go a little bit more in depth for me. Yeah, definitely. So the foundation of Illumin Capital is that taking the time to reduce racial and gender biases can eliminate barriers to seeing true financial and impact value. Mm -hmm. Um, And the roots of our thesis go back to a study that we conducted with a social psychology center at Stanford called Stanford Spark, where basically we ran an an experiment with real-life asset allocators Mm-hmm. that showed that when you keep a one-pager the same, education level, track record, everything the same, and just change the photo, if you show people a black face versus a white face, investors feel more comfortable investing in and more are more likely to invest in the white fund managers than the black fund managers, even though everything is the same. So that shows that racial bias is preventing people from seeing true financial value. And so for us, we really anchored on the possibility of supporting investors who may be well-intentioned but unintentionally have biases that are clouding their financial judgment. 
So this is interesting what you just said. When was the study done? The study was um, launched in 2019. Okay, so that wasn't not even five years ago. Yeah. And it's still, this is so crazy because I remember when I was younger, there was this similar experiment, but in like grade school <laughs> for the black kids and the white kids. And they were, that showed bias even then. So it's not, it's surprising and not surprising, right? You think in 2023, we would have gotten past some of these things, but it's sad that it's not. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of possibility because biases are, we say they're shortcuts that people rely on when situations trigger the reliance on biases. It doesn't mean, again, that somebody is a bad person. We all use biases to make decisions at all moments, whether or not to cross the street, how to react when someone is throwing something at you. But it's more, can you slow down and be more intentional when you don't necessarily want to rely on your biases to make decisions. For example, when a lot of money is going out the door. Well, is some of it bias or is some of it really just more like preservation? If I invest in this type of manager, which has this type of track record, clearly that study showed bias. That's 100% clear. But was it really? Some of it probably was bias, and some of it might have been preservation as well. Okay, if I'm investing in these kind of people, then honestly, I feel like I would be more preserved if something happened versus if I invested in these other people. Yeah, I think it's the difference between the process metrics or kind of those inputs that have led to the outcomes that you want, which mm-hmm. obviously within fiduciary duty is yielding positive financial returns. Yes. But there's this reliance on the trend that has historically happened, which is to your like how you're phrasing it, preservation of mm-hmm. these inputs have reliably led me to these financial returns. But we believe that people aren't seeing the inputs that the full spectrum of inputs that yes. could to those outcomes. And thus they're leaving dollars on the table that others are seeing the value in. That's true. I'm glad we had that conversation. <laughs> and so that's going to lead us into what are you currently learning or listening to or reading these days? Yeah. One thing we've been thinking a lot about is with regards to our stewardship. So how we support portfolio fund managers after we've made the investment decision. A lot of the work is around supporting them in building out processes around DEI. And so one of an important accountability mechanism to close that feedback loop for us is the impact measurement piece. Mm -hmm. So we've been exploring, and I was just at a conference where I met with a number of impact measurement vendors Mm -hmm. and software providers who are trying Mm -hmm. to build out standards in the field for even how do you define DEI data? How do you define like race and gender? Mm-hmm. How do you collect it in a way that enables high quality data, but also how do you use that data to understand what's working? And I think a big part of that is moving from the diversity piece of DEI towards true equity and inclusion. That's something we spend a lot of time mm-hmm. on is how do we collect high quality diversity data to look at who is represented in the investing industry itself? Because mm-hmm. since we're a fund of funds and 
who's represented in terms of the founders that are getting capital. But we also collect quite a bit of qualitative data, which allows us to understand more around the equity and inclusion pieces of whether or not people's attitudes and mindsets are changing, because that's what it's going to take for the work to actually be sustained more long run. And I think because there's a lot of market pressures right now, we are seeing that people are bought in to, at least in our portfolio, are increasingly bought into the vision of DEI, why it matters, why it has both moral and financial reasons to engage in DEI initiatives. But there continues to be um, a kind of lack of guidance or best practices in terms of what do I actually do about it. And people are facing more pressure to support portfolio companies in ways beyond solely the DEI element. So we don't want DEI to get left behind because people are experiencing a lot of market pressures right now. Mm -hmm. So we really think about how do we embed DEI into every element of your work rather than being this like siloed away different thing that you cared about in 2020, but don't have time for anymore. No, and I'm glad you brought that up because we're both in California and California just passed multiple bills (laughs) that were interesting. But one of the ones they just passed was about if you are making investments in California companies, how are you collecting that data as a fund? Because now you have to report it back to California. In our fund, we've been collecting impact data since, in general, since 2018. I've been collecting impact data and we follow... And we have our people create sustainability plans based on the UN 17 goals, Mm -hmm. right? We try not to have it so, you know, based. Mm -hmm. We look at it across all those vectors because it impacts us environmentally. It impacts us financially. It impacts who you're hiring. It impacts who's building what. It impacts who's creating the wealth, it it impacts many things. And so we looked at it and so those UN SDGs, which are global, because we also have companies that want to go in and out of the U.S., are are more aligned than just having, like you said, the separate silo. Here's the DEI set. Here's this other set. Mm -hmm. To me, they're like, there's because there's the SDGs and then there's the DEI. In my mind, they're combined. I don't see them as different. If you are in an underserved area, like you said, like Mississippi or even California, Fresno, they have places here <laughs> where they're underserved areas or ga- or large gaps. There are gaps here, even in California. How do you measure that? And like you said, the DEI piece can be left behind if you don't look at it in a holistic viewpoint. Yeah, I think you're so right that those outcome disparities in a lot of issue areas that are impact focus areas for folks, it can be climate and sustainability, health Mm -hmm. and wellness, Mm -hmm. education, workforce. And those are only a few of the many areas that people focus on. A lot of those outcome disparities are related to systems of racial and gender bias. Um, Those can be policies that have been passed long ago. Yeah. for example, with climate, we really have to think about who's disproportionately affected by climate change. And a lot of that results, for example, from redlining where people who were folks uh, who were Black could only live in certain neighborhoods. And those happen Mm -hmm. to be neighborhoods that are also disproportionately affected by 
climate change or by climate crises. Right, because you have to drive further to get to work or you have to take this or that, or even from a health perspective, right? Maybe, well, it's more pollution. Let's say you have to take the bus and you have to get some kind of treatments, right? There's a disparity there, Mm -hmm. right? There's many, I call them gaps, disparities, gaps that need to be solved. But I appreciate you bringing up the kind of way the bias has come about because there are things in place even you, like as a fund of funds, right? You go to institutional investors, they have systems in place, unfortunately, where they can only do so much because, like you said, this has been put in policies that are very hard to change and no one really has a ton of incentive to change either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's about, so those in power positions providing them with the language and resources to make those changes. And I think thinking about, there's a lot of conversation around next-gen planning in general Mm -hmm. in the field right now and like the wealth transfer. I think Mm -hmm. for us, it's also important to work with both our LPs, but also our GPs who are not in a power position right now. So I guess future GPs who are associates or principals. So enabling Mm -hmm. and empowering that bottoms-up change as well. Because we know that every person has a role to play in terms of changing broader culture. Now, some people obviously have more ability to change those policies, but some people are building towards that in their careers. And we want to enable that sustainable change. So that also when people like don't have the energy to pay attention to this, which we're already seeing kind of people moving on to the next thing different, that there's societal yeah. pressure for. The different um, things, yes. Yeah, they already have that muscle. It's like brushing your teeth. Like you already have that habit. No, that's great. This leads to the bonus question. Everyone gets it. In two years, how do you see venture capital in investing having changed or evolved? Yeah. I think we're already starting to and hopefully continuing to see more diverse faces in terms of who's in a position of being able to allocate capital. Mm -hmm. I think for us, where we're moving is towards, again, building those processes that enable you to tap into the power of diversity. So it's not just getting people in the room. It's are they heard when they're in the room? What is the paradigm of those power dynamics of how capital goes out the door? One small example being investment committees. There's right. a way that it's always been done. But like the whole point of DEI and embedding that as a lens on the work in impact investing is that you're not just doing things the way they've always been done. I'm thinking in two years, you're going to see a lot more alternative ways that small processes that lead to millions of dollars going out the door and being invested in companies looks really different. So the entire mm-hmm. investment process is being run differently and mm-hmm. by people who bring a lot more different perspectives into the room, but they're actually being heard when they're in the room too. Because right now we're seeing a lot of hiring of like mid-level investors who come from diverse, have diverse identities or have different lived experiences. But mm-hmm. I've had a lot of conversations with like COOs of all our portfolio funds recently about, okay, how can we actually make sure they're heard? Um, Their perspective, even if it's different, is captured in investment committee. And so I think in two years, we're going to see that people are 
not just focused on the numbers, which is very important to continue having that transparency and accountability. That's why we publish our impact report publicly mm-hmm. every year. Mm-hmm. But those numbers are actually changing how things are done. So the process elements of making sure there's actual inclusion. And I think that's like a much, that's a difficult hurdle to cross, but I think that's the only way that there's actually going to be like the power of diversity in terms of changing how capital markets allocate dollars to products Mm -hmm. and services. And are those products and services serving rural women in Mississippi? Are they actually serving a new customer base? Mm -hmm. No, and that, no, it's interesting. I just had a conversation with someone from Alabama and no, Oklahoma, (laughs) right? Same issues, right? The system of venture capital and funding and allocating can be done across multiple of these different types of places. And those viewpoints and the problems they're solving and all the things are going to be different than what's happening here in LA or San Francisco where you are, right? Like their problem solving is very different. So if you are an allocator, there's no reason why you wouldn't be looking at those areas and helping to see how those people are solving those problems because they have those direct problems for themselves. For example, I know Mississippi had a problem with the water. We have a problem with water in California too, but not, it wasn't at that level yet. <laughs> mm-hmm. But the reality is that disproportionately impacted a lot of black and brown people. And so they may be the ones thinking about, okay, how do we make sure that this never happens again? So like they may be entrepreneurially sitting down and having conversations about how do we never make this happen again? Exactly. And so your, your point is, okay, those voices need to be heard or maybe powdered or something because they may have a novel solution because it happened to them the first time. And they, exactly. that's a direct impact to their life. Exactly. And I think that also raises an interesting point of like venture capital dollars, I think could be used also one more creatively in terms of the products and services, but also there's always this focus in venture backable companies on what's scalable. And I think within impact investing to avoid like impact washing, we're seeing a lot more investments in like evidence-based services and services that you know are going to work before you scale them, right? Rather than scaling something that hasn't been proven to work. So can VC dollars also take what's working and build that evidence base so that even if it's not an app and it's something that's more for a rural community, word of mouth or something, there's this power that VC dollars can play to almost have a pilot or build an evidence base. And then you can bring in braid and blend other forms of capital. So mm-hmm. philanthropic capital, government dollars that can yeah, actually grant money, provide that money, non-dilutive scale. companies, right? Non-dilutive. Yeah. Exactly. I think that VC dollars could be used a lot more creatively within mm-hmm. true impact investing to scale an evidence base and to scale the impact side of impact investing. No, I, yeah, no, I, that, and and that makes sense to me because that in the end, you you sh- it, just because it's a, in a small rural area now, first of all, it doesn't mean it doesn't apply all over the place. Just because you're looking at it in that small microcosm, doesn't mean it's not help 
helping solve a massive global problem either. So, right, venture dollars should be watching all these kind of things just in general because they could be solving the, that could be the next, we always talk about Google and Amazon and all that, but they could be the next thing like that, but they're helping solve the problem around water or, and then that, or around other things, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think also that mindset of moving away from one issue area, because I think all of it to what we were speaking about earlier is interconnected, right? Mm -hmm. Climate affects people's health. Um, It affects at, at my old job. I did a project on like lead poisoning from paint that affects people's involvement in the justice system. A lot of things are interconnected. And Mm -hmm. I saw when I was working and teaching in Mississippi that a lot of grant dollars were focused on education supply. So academic resources, but really what the student, what we mostly paid for was food to feed people because they would have no lunch and gas money to go pick up everyone and bring them physically to school. But that wasn't what grant dollars were paying for. So I think seeing VC be more creative about how issue areas blend together. And we're definitely seeing that with some of our ed tech focused funds, for example, investing more in health resources that Mm -hmm. are based at public schools where students can get healthcare access at school itself. Yeah. All right. To be continued. How do people contact you? Yeah, people can reach out. I think our email just on the Illumin Capital website or I'm always happy to be connected at LinkedIn and looking forward to a number of conferences this fall as well, which are always a great opportunity to meet people face to face because this work is so relational. It's always great to actually get to see a person in the flesh. Yes, it is. All right. Joanna Kong from Illumin Capital. Thank you so much for being my guest on the Female VC Lab podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by Trail and Ventures. Find and invest in the next billion-dollar emerging tech company. Sign up for our exclusive content at https colon slash slash trailin, T-R-A-I-L-Y-N dot com to find out more. Find us on Apple, on Spotify, and on Google Podcasts. Thank you for listening.